You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a bright, beautiful, well, it was foggy morning here in Davis, California. Patchy clouds, so you can say bright and beautiful if you look out the window at just the right moment. Patchy fog <laughs> at the moment, mostly sunny is what the weather service is saying. At the same time, they're telling me that it's overcast where I am. Both of those statements are true. <laughs> it's somewhere. Uh, today's date is January 17, 2024. We're recording this for broadcast on January 18, 2024. My birthday. Happy birthday. And Tomorrow. going up to a high of 60 degrees today with a low tonight of 41, we're going to have dense fog. Why? Because it's been raining. There's a lot of moisture out there. Thursday, the day of the broadcast, patchy fog in the morning, then mostly cloudy, 56 degrees. And we're going into a rainy pattern for a few days. We just came out of a rainy pattern. Thursday night, cloudy, 45 degrees. This is These are warmer storms. Each of these, the last storm and these coming in are warmer than the ones we had two weeks ago where the day high only got to like 48. Remember that? Friday, chance of showers, 58 degrees. Friday night, 51 degrees. Saturday, 59 degrees with showers likely. Saturday night, 50 degrees with showers. Rain likely on Sunday with a high of 57 degrees. Sunday night, rain. Says rain. Not even likely, just rain. (laughs) Cloudy with a low around 52. Monday, rain. Cloudy with a high near 60, so warm rain. Monday night, rain likely, mostly cloudy with a low around 49. And Tuesday, a chance of showers, partly sunny with a high near 60 as this thing kind of scoots out of here. Uh, we'll get to rainfall totals in a moment. Let me give the extended discussion Sunday through Wednesday. As I say, wet weather continues Sunday into Monday as a short wave troughs and associated weather move through interior Northern California. That appears to be the period of heaviest precipitation per the model guidance. One to two and a half inches of rain expected in the Central Valley Sunday and Monday. One and a half to four and a half inches in the foothills and mountains. Snow levels are high above 6,000 feet during this period. Several feet of snow possible over over the higher elevations. The models differ Tuesday with the strength of the shortwave ridging, which means dry weather progressing through. It's hard to say how much of a break in wet weather is expected Tuesday and possibly more rain thereafter. Some people have been asking me where we stand with respect to rainfall, and it's all over the place. Depends on where you live, actually. Um, Vacaville, Dixon area, has had about 8.6 inches of rain so far this rainfall season. The official UC Davis weather station has had 5.4 inches of rain. And the National Weather Service says Davis has had seven inches of rain. So there you go, somewhere between five and a half and eight and a half inches of rain locally. And by the way, for those of you out of the area, those, those sites are about 10 miles apart. So that tells you something about the distribution of rainfall in these storms. But we're somewhere, we're below average. It's about 84% of average for Vacaville. And uh, the snowpack is way below average. The reservoirs are above average, thanks to last year's storms. One other thing to note, chilling hours for fruit trees. I I am on the email lists of various uh, agricultural 
information sources and magazines and whatnot. And there is some concern. We started off the year with chilling hours tracking very high. We were, we were above average and we were doing fine. And then we hit about the second or third week of December. And it was quite warm, as you'll recall. January 1st was a sunny day here, and we were almost 60 degrees on New Year's Day. We not only didn't gain chilling hours during the last two weeks of December and the first week of January, we were losing chilling portions because of those warmer days. There is some concern on some crops that we might not have enough chilling hours if things continue with these somewhat warmer storms coming through. They're not concerned about almonds because they've had what they need already. And in fact, I can tell you something. Uh, my flowering apricot is in bloom. Which what? It's normal in January. Flowering oh. apricot, Prunus mumi, the one that's used for salted apricots, is an earliest bloomer of all. Usually blooms about the third week of January. Well, there we are. Uh, one of our almonds one variety we have at the nursery all in one which is a dwarf almond that's self-fruitful the buds are showing color and mm. that's definitely early <laughs> it only needed about 400 chilling hours that's what it's gotten and we're coming out of that with these warmer spells so it's going to be blooming probably it looks like about two weeks ahead of schedule so we will see some things blooming early some things will be fine farmers are a little concerned about the male pistachios not getting enough chilling hours and so forth home gardeners have very little to be concerned about because we are on track but at the low end of our average of chilling hours so if you have a, a tree that is starting to well gonna break buds <laughs> yeah are there any bees around to pollinize it Pollinated. Pollinated. Oh, yes, good news. The bees are out. By the way, I've, one thing I've always noticed on these sunny days when we have, I have a camellia blooming out front, the bees are practically trying to tear the flower buds open to get into the flowers because there's not much blooming out there for them. So whatever is blooming will be heavily visited. There aren't many bees out, but there's enough of them and they're looking for flowers and looking for, for pollen. So uh, yes, the bees are out, not just our native bees, but the European honeybees. Mostly, I'm guessing, feral European honeybees at this stage because they haven't yet dropped off the bee boxes at the almond orchards, but that'll happen soon. And they always drop the bee boxes off. For those of you who don't live in or near the Sacramento Valley, almonds are one of our number one crops here. There are many, many, many thousands of acres of almonds here, and they're all pollinated by European honeybees, which are brought in in big boxes and dropped off at the edge of the hive sometime in late January. Typically, they just stack them up out there, maybe early for them to be there, but they don't mind. If it's cold, they just stay in the hives. If it's warm, they come out and they find whatever is blooming. And that may be mustard flowers. That may be Don's farm, which has a lot of things blooming. And there's almond boxes at the next farm over. They all come over to my place to pollinate whatever I've got blooming at that point. And they will come out early if the weather is warm. European honeybees are, are really wimps. They won't fly when it's cloudy, rainy, windy, or cold. But if it's sunny, they are out there. And uh, yes, if these things bloom early, I can, you can just bet you'll see honeybees on them because they'll be dropping those bee boxes off pretty soon. KDRT is community radio. That means public radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you and me and Lois to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. And while you're there, there's all kinds of great programming here at KDRT. One of the long-running programs here, and it has won multiple awards, is Davisville, where host Bill Buchanan talks to the interesting people who have ideas and connections and events here in Davis. Stories that have some connection to Davis. It has won 13 Excellence in Journalism Awards from the San Francisco Press Club since 2018. An example of a recent program, January 8th, catching up on Davis housing issues, where he talks with, let's see, 
see uh, a property manager, a real estate agent, uh, people talking about rent, talking about downtown businesses, the whole the whole housing market in Davis, including the impact on seniors and so forth. So that's a great show, real topical, local local issues right there. That's the January 8th program. And there's a bunch of others in there that you can find the information going back for years because Davisville has been on the air for longer than Davis Garden Show has been on the air. And like Davis Garden Show, it archives forever. So you can go to kdrt.org, click on the Davisville program and scroll through and read all kinds of interesting topics. Bill talks to all sorts of interesting people here in this fascinating college community. Bohart Museum of Entomology, um, still butterfly contest, still open. If you're out there looking for your the first cabbage, cabbage white butterfly, you could still win this thing in the three county area of Yolo, Sacramento and Solano. Head on over to Bohart ucdavis.edu and check that out. I want to mention though another local resource that does look for volunteer help and that is Central Park Gardens. Central Park, downtown Davis, has a garden on the west side. Longtime residents may remember when there was going to be a shopping center built there and there was a great big community I'll call it uproar, <laughs> and the shopping center was was prevented. And instead, they planted this amazing garden there, the Central Park Gardens. Anytime you go to Central Park for farmer's market or anything else, head on over to the west side. And it's a really interesting display garden with plants that are low water, plants that are edible, plants that have particular uses, and it's evolved over the years into this wonderful little area where you can sit and look at things and get ideas for your own landscape. They do hold volunteer gardening sessions, so they like to have help every other Sunday morning year around. Every other Sunday morning year round. As they say, you can come join us and meet other friendly gardeners, contribute to a rewarding community project, learn more about gardening. No experience is necessary, and we're always looking for more volunteers. Volunteers are provided tools and direction for work projects, and gardening sessions are led by experienced local gardeners. So just contact Central Park Gardens at gmail.com if you're interested in volunteering. They don't host large volunteer groups, but uh, they are happy to have a few people show up. And there's all kinds of stuff you can do. Pulling weeds, spreading mulch, maybe even planting some plants. Who knows? Check out the garden itself for all the resources and opportunities that are there. And if you want to go help out, centralparkgardens at gmail.com. And that information is at, they have their own website, centralparkgardens.org. And you can just walk over and sit in the garden and enjoy it. You don't even have to wait for a Sunday morning. It's always there. That's right. It's like the Arboretum. There's no there's no hours for the Central Park Gardens or the UC Davis Arboretum. 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Okay. Well, it's January, Don. And so I've been looking at the January calendar. And for those of you who are interested, if you go to Don's uh, commercial website, redwoodbarn.com, click on the calendar and you can follow along and look at it all too. So I've been looking at this and there's a couple of things that it says you can do, which I want to mention. Mm. Vegetables. If you want to grow peppers and eggplants from seed, now is the time to seed them indoors. Yeah. And I, I want to talk on that a little bit. People keep coming in looking for vegetable seeds and they're ready to do their tomatoes now. Notice Lois didn't say seeds of tomatoes indoors. Oh. You do them indoors in, in late January, uh, by late April, early May, when it's time to plant them out, they'll be about four feet tall. So yeah. we at our nursery grow some of our own vegetables. We buy in a lot of them, but we grow some, especially the things we specifically really want to have. We're getting ready 
to start peppers and eggplant. We'll actually do them in February because we have warm benches, that is say heated benches, and we have greenhouses. So they'll go along faster for us than they will for you. Uh, peppers take a long time from seed to become plantable out. Is that the right phrase? Plant out. That's correct. Plant, plantable out <laughs> to be to be possible to plant them out. There we go. Better better syntax there. Uh, we have found that when we try to do them, well, personally, when I do them in my house and then move them up to their pots and and set them in the window and move them outside during the day when it's sunny enough, they just stall. They just sit there. They do the first two leaves and then they just sit there for weeks. And the other gardeners that I talk to who do these at home find the same thing: that peppers take a very long time for the home gardener to get ready to actually put out in the garden in May, which is when we really recommend putting them in the ground here. So they're they're slow. Eggplants are kind of intermediate. Tomatoes are very fast. Uh, we really do think that you'll you'll get better results if you have a light setup. In other words, grow lights that will enhance the, you know, increase the light intensity over them. So many days of gloomy weather that really slows them down. And these are really inexpensive now. You can find really simple grow light uh, systems that you can buy online that'll go ahead and enhance your seedling growth. They're much, you put them right close to the seedlings, you know, just a foot or so above them, even closer, depending on the model that you buy. And again, there's some very economical ones out there. So this is not totally impractical. Another thing I'll say about that is someone who's been using grow lights off and on over many, many years, the light spectrum on the modern ones is pleasant enough to live with. It's okay mm -hmm. to have it in your house. It, if it's on the other side of the room, you'll still be comfortable reading in that room. The original ones were kind of awful. You pretty much had a dedicated area for them because they glared and they were an unpleasant light spectrum. You can get some that are actually nice enough to be a room light right over the seedlings and you can let them stay on eight, 10, 12 hours a day to enhance the seedling growth. If you haven't done that, try it. You might find if you're a seed grower trying to do things at home, which is challenging enough to begin with, you'll get more consistent results if you do go ahead and get some of these inexpensive light apparatus. And I'm sure you have a friend that's used them uh, because they're out there by, you know, everybody's growing all kinds of things under these. For home gardeners, they're a great way to get going on your vegetables. You just put them right over the, the seedlings, just a few inches to a foot above, leave them on basically during daylight hours. Longer is fine. It doesn't hurt the plant to be on longer, but to conserve energy, eight to 10 hours a day is probably reasonable. And I think you'll get better results if you do that. But yes, starting peppers early, if you're going to do your own peppers, you really need to get going January to February on those. I'm looking at these pictures mm -hmm. on the calendar and I see violas. Now those are a winter flower. Well, when, when do violas start blooming? Here in the Sacramento Valley and places like this, of course, most of California, at least lowland California, as I like to call it, violas come into my nursery from growers in bloom late October into November and bloom oh. through the winter and into the spring. And they're generally finishing up when we get into the mid eighties to 90 degrees. So what we call cool season annuals are things that bloom in the winter if it's sunny enough. And certainly in the spring, late winter, early spring. And then typically in our climate, if you're new to the Sacramento Valley, you might wanna know this, by April, we get into the mid eighties very routinely. And at that point, most of these things either start to stretch or they finish up their life cycle or whatever. So we call them cool season annuals, or we sometimes use the phrase winter annuals, although that's not perfectly accurate because they're more like winter and spring annuals. Admittedly, these are things that probably mark spring in colder climates. I have lots of friends and family in places that, oh, in the last week got buried in snow. There's not any violas blooming in my friend's yard in Ann Arbor, Michigan, or my daughter's place in New York. <laughs> but uh, here 
It's just cold and foggy and rainy interspersed with sunny days. And most of these flowers like violas will bloom very nicely right through that kind of otherwise dreary weather. Another one that I saw in here are cyclamen. Now cyclamen, mm -hmm. I know to be a, a bulb-like structure mm -hmm. that flowers in the winter. And I think these are truly winter, aren't they? Yes, cyclamen are cool season preferring. Now there are species of cyclamen that bloom through the summer in cool coastal climates or places where your summers are cool. Scotland, you know, that sort of thing. Um, if you go over to the Fort Bragg Mendocino Coast Botanical Gardens, there's a, a wild cyclamen species that's run amok under the rhododendrons over there. It's blooming every time I've been there, summer, fall, you name it. Uh, here in the valley, cyclamen, whether you're getting the miniature types that are newer or the forest types that have been around forever, they come into bloom towards the holidays, late November. They bloom easily through the winter and into the spring. And they're generally done with their major bloom, same pattern as violas, by early to mid-spring as we start to get into the 80s. The bulb, at least on the bigger types, is triggered somehow that it wants to go dormant. And uh, at that point, most people think, oh, they're dying. They pull them out and throw them away. Well, it's a bulb. You can leave it there. If it stays too wet during the summer, pretty good chance it'll rot. If the drainage is good, as in containers and things like that, they'll come through the summer just fine. I even have pictures of cyclamen, particularly these new miniature types, blooming right on through the summer in the shade on my property. And they're all in containers because I just tuck them into barrels and things around other flowers and other shrubby things and just enjoy the bloom whenever it happens. I literally have had cyclamen blooming every month of the year in the shade. Uh, the typical pattern is more like the violas and pansies and such, which is they bloom in the winter and into the early to mid spring. We had talked, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, about uh, Tanya's need for a privacy screen in that beautiful yard that she has. And it was a good discussion. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But Don, you had an update on this, didn't you? Yeah, well, I walked around my farm uh, earlier today, actually, to take some pictures, because this time of year is when people start noticing how bare and bleak their yards are. Uh, if they've got heavy, if they're heavy on deciduous plants, uh, it's a little barren out there. And this is when the evergreen plants, which are what we use as hedges and screens, really stand out. So I just went and took pictures of some of my mature evergreen shrubs. And I'm going to try and make a folder for this and probably share it at the davisgardenshow.com site with a link possibly from the KDRT show site. So very quickly, some of the things that I have that would function very well uh, would include the Arbutus marina, which is uh, something I'm sure we talked about. It's a relative of Madrone that turns into a tree, but it would make a, an excellent screen. Grevilleas. Grevilleas <laughs> are Australian shrubs, and I don't think we discussed them. They're mm -hmm. outstanding for California, the whole group. It's the, the largest number of species of any shrub in Australia or something like that. I mean, there's hundreds of species and, and cultivars. Grevilleas or Grevillea, 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 are big shrubs for the most part. It's a diverse group. It's much like our Ceanothus here in California. So there's a lot of species and a lot of varieties and they're widely used in gardens down there. And there are forms that hug the ground. There's a lot of them that are intermediate size. It would just be low shrubs. There's a whole bunch that are very big shrubs and there's even a tree. So just like Ceanothus, you got the whole range of growth habits. Uh, the tree one, Ray Hartman, is a 20 foot plant 15 to 20 foot fast growing upright does provide a screen i didn't mention it last time that's the ceanothus because it tends to fizzle out here in the valley pretty quickly but grevilleas do very well and i have a long hedge of variety that i can tout highly if you don't mind a spiny plant pink pearl 
unknown parentage. It appears to be interspecific hybrid. My plants that I'm looking at this picture are about seven feet tall by about 10 feet across. The needles are a little prickly, so that could be good or bad, depending on where you plant it. I like it because this is where the foxes live on my property is in this Grevillea hedge. They like spiny prickly things. My dogs and, and others wouldn't run in there because it was spiny and prickly, so the foxes like to hide in there. There is never a time of year that this plant is not blooming. It's extremely attractive to hummingbirds. Curious, since there's no hummingbirds in Australia, but apparently there's a nectar bird of some sort down there that fills that same niche that hummingbirds fill here. And the heavy bloom, all the Grevilleas, is in the wintertime here in the Sacramento Valley. So if you want to see some amazing ones, just head on over to the UC Davis Arboretum, walk over to the East End, or enter from the East End, and that's the Australia-New Zealand collection, and there's lots of Grevilleas. There are some that they planted many years ago, and a fair number they planted in within about the last decade. And midwinter, you'll see amazing bloom on them, and the hummingbird activity. I was there in the pouring rain at one point a couple of years ago, and there were hummingbirds everywhere. I mean, just flying around in the rain going to the Grevilleas flowers. I do want to mention with grevilleas, um, wherever you're listening, there's many that are hardy and some that aren't. Because grevilleas being all over Australia, like California, very diverse climate, some of them only go down to about 28 degrees. Many of them, unfortunately, with very showy flowers only go down to about 28 degrees. We do get below 28 degrees here pretty frequently, often enough that this would be a problem for many of those, but we do have a lot of them that are hardy here. So you wanna check the cold hardiness, figure 25 degrees is kind of our floor for these. If they say it's hardy to 25, you're probably fine with it. I'm out in the country, I get below 25 every couple of years. So I go for the even hardier ones. Pink Pearl can go down to about 20 degrees. So that's just one of many of the grevilleas that you can use as a hedge. Grew pretty fast. This hedge that I planted from one gallon cans was seven feet tall by about the fourth year and about eight feet across by about the fourth year. Yes, you can prune it, but they're prickly. So don't put this one where you're going to have to do a lot of pruning on it. Right next to it, bottle brush, regular old red flowered bottle brush. My plant is about 10 by 10. It blooms in cycles. I know this is a very common sort of boring plant in Southern California. I grew to kind of dislike it down there because it always looked anemic, always got put in places where people would prune the heck out of it. An unpruned bottle brush allowed to grow to its natural potential, water deeply and infrequently is a beautiful plant. And there's a bunch of new ones. I think I mentioned the real upright growers last time, but the regular old fashioned bottle brush is very cool. So I have a bottle brush that I planted. I, I didn't expect it to become a tree, yeah. but it is now a multi-stem tree there. I can walk under it and the flowers, the blossoms are all over my head yeah. and it is taller than a two-story house. There's a, a really good example in that same part of the Arboretum that has been there for 40 years or more. The Australia end of the Arboretum when I came here in the 1970s consisted of uh, some eucalyptus trees, one bottle brush, I think there was a banksia down there and that's about it. It hadn't been really developed yet. Well, that bottle brush is still there and it's probably 20 feet and it's arching over the pathway. So they can get quite big and it's not uncommon for nurseries, especially in Southern California, to stake this one up and sell it as a tree, which it works as. But to me, I like to plant these woody plants and let them grow to their natural potential without hard pruning, without doing weird things to them. An unpruned, naturally grown bottle brush is indeed a lovely plant. So uh, those of you that have adverse feelings about them as I used to have, uh, try growing it more naturally. It's a very pretty plant. Right down from that plant on my property is an Italian buckthorn, Ramnus alternus. There's nothing exciting about it because the flowers are too small for you to see. It sets little fruit that are also too small for you to see, but you know what does see them? 
every bird on the property sees them. It is very, very active with birds. And it's as tough as Ceanothus in terms of drought tolerance. It's closely related to Ceanothus, but it's a Mediterranean species, but much less fussy about irrigation. And there's a form out there called John Edwards that's even considered more resistant to root and crown rot. So my plan of that is about 15 by 15. And it could have been pruned in from the 15 width if that was necessary. It makes a great hedge. Basically looks like a nice, clean giant boxwood kind of thing. But again, very, very attractive to certain to, well, I'm assuming they're songbirds, to small birds that like to hide in them. So on that one you're just talking about now, are is that the one with the little tiny leaves or is that bigger leaves, bigger than the Ceanothus leaves? Smaller. So a, a very similar to Ceanothus actually, except unfortunately it doesn't have the showy flower, but easier to grow and denser growth habit than a lot of the Ceanothus. And does it last longer? Ceanothus seems to die out pretty quick. Yeah, I, one of the reasons I don't mention Ceanothus for hedges and screens is that our experience here is that if they live more than five years, you've done well. Um, we have dense soil that holds nutrients and holds water, and so they tend to not succeed. They grow. They're great. You get real excited the first two or three years, and it's really nice over the time. When people are talking about putting in Ceanothus as a hedge, I suggest they do a mixed hedge. Be sure to include something like Toyon or Xylosma or something else. If you want to go native, use Toyon or Coyote Bush. If you want, if you don't mind non-native use any of a number of other things we've talked about because the ceanothus will be spectacular and the bees love it and it's an incredible plant but there's a very very high mortality rate on them here in the Sacramento Valley there are none native here uh, so it's a coastal native foothill native mountain native not a valley for dense soil native so it's an issue that that people want them because they're beautiful and they attract the pollinators but they tend to die out this one does not do that it's a cousin from Italy that does better here than our than its California relatives uh, there's several plants on my property. They're Eliagnus, Eliagnus, which includes Russian olive. Don't plant that. <laughs> but there's a bunch of other shrubs in the Eliagnus group. They are background plants. Some of them are variegated. They're very cool. The flowers are tiny, but incredibly fragrant. It's up there with Osmanthus in terms of you know, the sweet olive, in terms of the scent and how far it drifts. So you'll be walking around out there 30 feet away. All of a sudden, this cloud of volatile organic compounds will envelop you. Very sweet, spicy scent. Eliagnus are big shrubs. I hate to see them planted where they have to be clipped hard because that doesn't look great. They're a nice informal shrub, but where mine are, they've done very well. Right near them is Viburnum, and I don't think we mentioned this group. Viburnum tinus is the one we do in the valley. It's an upright grower that blooms in the winter. So it's beginning to bloom now. And then the blooms, which are white, but there's lots of them, so it's very pretty, are followed by little steely blueberries, which are showy enough in their own way, but also very, very attractive to, I don't know what the birds are, but little songbirds definitely like them. Uh, robins and uh, yellow-rumped warblers would come to them. I don't know if the yellow-rumped warblers are actually eating the seeds or eating the insects that are eating the seeds. Yeah. But in, who cares? In either case, they're, they're very happy there. Now, if you're listening in a much colder climate like Chicago, head on over to the Morton Arboretum and look at all the different kinds of viburnums they have there. It's a big group and they're evergreen most many of them are evergreen many of them are very large shrubs very showy flowers and very very cold hardy so that's going to be one of your key big hedge plants in a lot of colder climates the whole group of viburnums and then the last couple of pictures i took were a myrtle common myrtle makes a great shrub hedge but it's slow so mine has only grown about a foot a year and i took a picture of my pitosporum tobira 
Phytosporum or Phytosporum, and my plant that's regular green form is 20 feet tall and almost 20 feet across after 35 years. I've never pruned it down. I've always pruned it up because we had a path there, so we wanted to walk under it. I have one in my backyard that I've pruned hard. It's just about the same age, and I keep it at eight feet with no problem. With Every couple of years, I prune it back pretty hard. So Phytosporum is a big genus, and that leads us to an interesting problem. I'll just quickly mention two other things I took pictures of, then we'll come back to Pittosporum. Holly, which Easterners know real well, Ilex, the genus Ilex, they do very well here in the Sacramento Valley. They're not drought tolerant. They're okay with reduced watering, but they're not drought preferring for sure. And they get bigger than most people think. The one I took a picture of is 20 feet tall and it's too close to my house. I'm going to have to take the darn thing out, but it's a solid wall. Of prickly foliage, as you know, if you've ever dealt with holly, and it's evergreen, solid, and if you get the right kind, you actually get berries on them as well. And then the last thing I took a picture of is a camellia. And uh, camellias do very well as a screen. Many parts of California, they're very easy to grow here in the valley. I wouldn't put it in the hottest sun, but they're okay with morning sun, even into the early to mid part of the afternoon. And they are not super drought tolerant, but they're not as water requiring as most people think. Established camellias are pretty tough plants that aren't that hard to grow. For a long time in Davis, Woodland, Dixon area, we had the issue of high pH water but also high salt content in the water and camellias struggled. Now we've gone mostly over to surface water from the Sacramento River. We did that a decade or so ago. The salt content is lower. The pH is still high, but that's not as much of an issue as people seem to think it was. Camellias are doing better. And while they would provide a screen, they grow one to two feet a year. So that's the kind of thing you would have as part of your border, but you need something faster. Some of the earlier shrubs that I talked about might be more suitable. One other comment about these shrubs, many of these are broadleaf evergreens and colder climates they aren't going to work as well lois and i talk about xylosma a lot but it doesn't grow in usda zone seven it's killed the usda even in sunset zone seven so it's something that's hardy enough for us but probably not as hardy outside of this region another well-known shrub in that category is oleander which i haven't really mentioned because there's millions of them in california it is a very tough shrub it is very drought tolerant it isn't hardy below about 20 degrees and so if you're listening outside of that range you wouldn't be growing oleander we probably have enough of them in california now but i will say that the the white one sister agnes you need a great big and indestructible background plant that blooms all summer it'll get 15 feet it does it quickly it's yes of course they're poisonous everybody knows that but hardly anything hardly anything goes wrong with them in the Central Valley of California. But when we talk about oleander, Southern California, there's a disease that's been killing them for several years now. It's uh, transmitted by a particular vector that also attacks grapevines and stuff. And so they're dying to the ground like they have fire blight and people are taking them out like crazy in southeastern part of California. Coastal zones of California, the gall on oleander is so problematic that it really disfigures them. So here in the valley, we're one of the only places in the state left where you can do really well with oleander if you happen to want to. And yes, they take heat, they take drought, they bloom all summer. They're very cool in that regard. Anytime I mention oleander at this point, it's like suggesting, you know, freeway ice plant. There's so many of them in the state. We Maybe we should get away from them, but I you know, do no. want to mention them in passing. I like them, but yeah, there's there's a lot of them planted here. Caltrans has used a lot of oleanders. Let's put yeah. it that way. Yeah, they're freeway plants, <laughs> for most go. people know. But, you know, oleander is not just one thing. You talk about the white one that gets 15 feet tall. It's biggest of all. Are other colors and other sizes. So, yes. you know, and you can prune an oleander. Uh, you could cut the thing down to the ground and it would Ooh. be just fun. 
fine. <laughs> the highway department does that routinely. They have a special yeah. machine just for that purpose. They do it. I live on the freeway. They do it in the middle of the night with a machine that was custom designed for the purpose of pruning and grinding oleander as they go. You'll hear them at two in the morning out there. And they just go down the whole hedge and they just take it down to about anywhere from three to six feet. Yes, you can do anything you want to them. And as Lois knows, there are dwarf forms of oleander that are perhaps suitable for the garden. Yes, everybody knows oleanders are poisonous. One other thing I should mention about them, there's an, an aphid that they get, the oleander aphid, which native plant enthusiasts are really frustrated by because it's moved very happily on to milkweed. And uh, so almost any milkweed that you grow gets this really rather pretty golden aphid. I think it's cool. Uh, so it doesn't really hurt the milkweed. You just don't spray for it on the milkweed because then you make the milkweed poisonous to butterfly. But you don't have to spray for it on the oh, oleanders because I had oleanders just outside a window where I used to have my office. And so I would sit there and look out the window and, and half of the window would be covered by the oleander bush, you know, and, and the other half I could see the sky. Mm -hmm. But it, the at one point, all of a sudden, these bright, bright yellow aphids, and those are big aphids, by the way, <laughs> Very visible. showed up. And I'm going, whoa, what is this? And next thing I know, the entire bush is alive with yellow rumped warblers. Oh, there you go. <laughs> love those little aphids. And the the uh, the golden crown, or excuse me, ruby crowned uh, kinglet. Yeah. They, they came, oh, they had a good time. In yeah. fact, one of those little birds um, kept trying to, I thought it was trying to get in the window because it, was, it kept going around the edges of the window. I finally figured it out. It was getting spider webs mm. on the very edge of the outside of the window, and it was using that to make a nest. So oleanders draw wildlife. Got it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, and, well, we're, you know, we're not, we're not promoting they, them here. but those, if you, those yellow aphids do not hurt the oleander at no, all. No, not a bit. They, if you don't me. happen to have, you know, kinglets in your yard and, and, and that, the, that the aphids stay on the oleander won't hurt it a bit. No, you're not going to hurt it. And worth also worth noting, it doesn't really hurt the, the milkweed either. It just concerns people yeah. and it's not a native pest. But it uh, don't spray your milkweed with anything because then it would be possibly harmful to the monarchs as there's their their larvae feed on the milkweed. But you don't need to worry about it. You can wash them off if they bother you. But yes, it does. They do share that with the oleander. Interesting that there's an aphid that can feed specifically on highly toxic plants. Uh, and it's actually very lovely aphid if you happen to like that kind of thing. Okay. So we got a question. Actually, Don gave this one to me. A landscaper designer from the Bay Area used Phytosporum tenuifolium as a hedge all around the backyard of this, this person. 18 of these bushes. Mm -hmm. Now, the leaves are showing burn on those in the sunniest sites. Some branches are dying back. And of course, they came in asking what to spray. But let's first say, What's going wrong with Potosporum tenuifolium? Um, this is not the first, second, third, or fourth time I've had this question about certain species of the genus Potosporum or Pitosporum, however you prefer to say it. Um, here, I, we mentioned for hedges, Pitosporum tobira is a very popular species that does well here, and there's a variegated form that does very well here. But these are different. And uh, tenuifolium, eugenioides, and a couple of others, one, they're not real drought tolerant. 
So they do scorch on the foliage if they go dry and they're facing west is pretty much what it comes down to here in the valley. And that's probably what happened here. He has it on a drip system. He was watering enough to get new growth. The plant was growing okay, but the leaves were scorching and the ones in the shade looked fine. So that was kind of our confirmation that it wasn't too much sun. It was inadequate water. When you have a, a glossy leafed evergreen, if it gets drought stressed, one of the things that happens is that waxy coating on the leaf thins out, even pittosporum to bio will do this. So if it's drought stressed and we have extreme heat and it faces the west, those leaves that are facing west, and I was able to show him on the picture, see how it's this part of the shrub where you're seeing most of the damage um, will, will scorch. It may just yellow, it may just bleach out, or it may literally burn, in which case you'll know at the time. What happens after that on any leaf like that that's been injured or, or there's some necrotic tissue is the normal organisms, bacteria and fungus that decompose dead stuff will show up and start decomposing the dead part of that leaf. They think that's the problem. They think it's a fungus or a bacteria that's killing the plant. But in fact, they're just acting on something that was injured previously. So his comment was, no, I thought this just happened recently. I just noticed it now. And I said, well, what you notice now is the secondary part where the dead part of the leaf is being decayed by organisms where that's their job. Um, what happened was probably back in August, September. That's usually when drought heat reactions really kick in here in the valley, not June or July when it first gets hot. But as the season goes along and you're not watering enough and the plant is just on the edge of drought stress, and then it gets even more onto the edge of drought stress and we have a heat wave and the leaves scorch and then we get cooler and the plant goes more or less back to normal. So the problem probably was late August through September. That's when we deal with a lot of summer leaf scorch at our nursery. I will say this though, Phytosporum that isn't Tobira, they're coastal plants. They're just not real suitable here in the valley. And I encounter this problem regularly. I don't want to dump on designers from the Bay Area. They know the plants to their region. It's only 60 miles away, but that's a world of difference when it comes to climate in California. And most of those just struggle in the valley for one reason or another. The other part is the issue that he's had, as have all the other customers I have where a designer has put in those species. There's a branch die back and the plant will grow fine and then a branch will die. And it'll grow fine and another branch will die. Not from the ground up, not a, not a Phytophthora type of dieback like we talk about so frequently here. It's not related to too much water. It looks more like the kind of disease that sometimes hits Japanese maples or other trees where it splashes in or windborne or something and it infects a branch. You can usually find the point of infection. Everything past that point dies. That would be okay if you didn't have 18 of them around your backyard doing this. And the last customer I talked with, we were about three to four years in, they were just getting fence height and she took a picture and every one of the plants had a branch here and a branch there dying. And she goes, what do I spray for this? I said, nothing. There's no spray that's going to prevent that. I mean, that I can really recommend. You just prune it out. And she goes, oh, if I prune it out, the problem won't come back. I said, no, I guarantee the problem will come back. Let me, let me. Because it's that species. It, it's those species in, in particular. Yes. And I said, this is why I don't sell this plant. Okay, I hate to say it that way. This is why I don't sell any of the plants in that group, Pittosporum tenuifolium, and Pittosporum eugenioides. Uh, this branch dieback is sort of a chronic thing. It's better years, some years, worse other years. But here in the valley, as they get heat stressed and other things like that, you'll get this problem. If you don't mind managing it, the plant will provide you the screening up to a point, except that part of the job of managing that hedge will be pruning out the dead portions. And most of them get a little dismayed at this. I say, well, don't don't rip them all out. I'm the first person I talked to about this several years ago. I'm going to take those all out. I'm really upset about this. Well, why? Keep the ones that are in the shade. They're fine. Keep one here, one there. Here's my suggestion. 
don't plant 18 of anything around your backyard. <laughs> plant five of this and three of that and two of this and one of that and have some repetition, certainly. So maybe this will be your backbone plant more likely in the case of the valley with this particular species. It'll be your hedge in the shadier portions and you'll have something else Maybe the other kind of pittosporum that doesn't get this, or maybe one of the 15 other shrubs we've talked about that we do know are suitable here in the valley, two to three of them. And then one, how about a flowering thing here? Even a flowering quince. Yeah, they're deciduous, but the other evergreens will provide the backbone that you need. That way, every hedge I can think of that's the new miracle hedge has come along and it's planted very heavily, millions of them get planted, and then something hits, you know, some disease or pest increases because of that. We could go through India Hawthorne. How about Photinia fraseri? Great shrub, sold by the millions at nurseries and hardware chains. It's the red tip Photinia. Everybody knows it once you describe it. Um, yeah, well, it does get fire blight. Yeah, it also gets leaf spot disease, and we can get problems on it. It's fine if you've got five of them, but if you've got 18 of them, then you've got a problem. And I've had people who've had to, you know, start getting fire blight on their Photinia fraser. I had to start removing them and replacing them. And they say, what do I replace it with? I say, nothing related. That's all. There's nothing that's related to Photinia. So something that looks kind of like it, Xylospa. Something that's different but would fill the same niche, Pittosporum tobira, Ramnus alternus, any of a number of possibilities. So it's really better, as with all things, Made greater species diversity leads to fewer problems in your landscape. So don't rush to take out all 18 of them, but probably in the hotter spots, replace those because you're obviously getting some relief scorch on them. And let's get privacy provided by a nice mix of foliage and mix of flowers and you get more wildlife that way. I mean, there's lots of benefits to that kind of thing. Clipped hedges have their place, I guess, but to me, an informal hedge is going to be better for you in the long run. Well, Don, we've gotten a number of uh, questions sent in to us. Where would a listener send if they had a question or they wanted to brag about something or send us a picture or something? Davisgardenshow at gmail.com. All right. So here are two questions that came in. Um, I don't have people attached to them, so I'll just read them. You told us about three mandarins that you can plant that give you fruit for a really long season of harvest. What are they again? Uh, there are several, but the earliest one would be the satsumas, which is a group of mandarins. Most people know the Owari satsuma. That's your classic California mandarin. Peels easily, comes into the market here in November, actually, because there's growers slightly uphill. We can harvest them before Thanksgiving. So Owari satsuma, there are variants of it, Dobashi Beni, Okitsuwasi, that ripen a little bit differently. But November, December into January for the satsuma group. Clementines, which have become very familiar to Californians because of the Cuties marketing program, which uses Clementine and mandarins. Clementines start ripening the earliest of them in January, most are February, March, and they have a, they're easy to peel, but a little tighter skin. They're mostly seedless. Some of them have seeds, some seedless ones are on the market. Good example is just sold under the name Clementine. Mercot is the main one in the Cuties program. Tango is an outstanding one in that group. And Tango is one of the Clementine group that's used in the Cuties program. And then uh, Cuties and Halos, those are both the ones that you're seeing in the grocery stores. They're small, they're easy to peel, they're seedless, they're very sweet. More sweet than tart, 
less tart than the Satsuma mandarins. And then you have the UC hybrids, the University of California hybrids that are also called mandarins that start ripening in the case of some as late as March and hang on to the tree all the way into the summer. A really good example of that is gold nugget. Gold nugget you can pick in March, April, May. By June, the sugar content is actually higher, although the acidity starts to drop. And people have told me they've picked very good quality gold nugget mandarins in July and even August. So you can actually pick from November to August. If you have Satsuma mandarin, one of the clementines such as tango and um, gold nugget. Pruning questions. Now, this is a good time of year to do that. Yep. This is from Daryl. So here we are for the second year to prune. I assume that whatever happens this time will be applicable to all future pruning. The red baron peach is already over 15 feet. Yikes. The Somerset peach still is a lot smaller. I'd like to show you pictures again to get your advice on how to prune. First is the Red Baron. Now the picture that is showing shows a very healthy, very nice tree. And up near about the halfway point, you can see where it was pruned last year. Yep. The the, the bark on the upper stem is a reddish color, and below that is a grayish color. I mean, they're all brown, but that reddish brown, grayish brown. And above that, there is another pruning mark, and it looks like last year they left three verticals that are, have grown a whole lot, very strong, upright growth, but all three of them are headed to the top. Right. Don, would you tell, say, make only one of them be an upright or what no. would you do with this plant? Well, peaches and nectarines, and we'll just talk about those this time. There's lots of pruning we could talk about, but these are different from other fruit trees in one regard. They fruit on new wood. That is last year's growth. And that's only where they fruit. And it's bright red in winter, as Lois was describing, and the older wood has turned gray. So if you don't prune a peach tree or a nectarine tree, they'll just get taller and taller and all the fruit will be out on the on the ends of last year's, you know, on last year's growth. And of course, the trees will fall apart. So they are color coded. When I was training staff on this, when we had a pruning service, I would say, look, this is convenient. They're color coded. Red is fruiting wood. Gray is older. So we're going to be thinning out some of the gray and the red is the biggest issue. If you don't prune a peach or a nectarine, it'll set too much fruit and they'll fall apart. The branches will break. So we use the 50-50 rule. 50% uh, of that needs to be headed back and the remaining 50% needs to be, and the remaining needs to be thinned about 50%. Yes, you're removing 75% of the fruiting wood each year. It's a very severe pruning on peaches or nectarines typically. I'll come up to an exception in a moment, but in general, you must prune them each year for size control and to reduce fruit production. In the third year, he's allowed this to grow up very tall, which is fine because we were mostly training it. You're going to cut all those upright shoots back about by half, and you're going to thin out or head back or some combination of those things, the remainder. And we would always warn customers when we were pruning, if we went into a backyard that had peach, plum, apricot, blah, blah, blah. We say the peaches and the next ones, we're going to prune hard. Please understand that. And there's a reason for this. Otherwise, they'll overproduce, branches will split and collapse. So I use the 50-50 rule. 
50% of it gets taken down and the other 50% gets thinned out or headed back. So that's a lot of fruiting wood reduction. You also do the usual stuff. If there's something with a disease or pest on it, you remove that, you do that first. If there's branches crossing to the interior, you cut them out so they're not crossing into the interior. If there's two branches too close together, you choose one of them and take the other one off. And that's the kind of thing where I'm gonna suggest that he just bring this in, we'll print it out and I'll draw some little lines with a Sharpie to show exactly where I would cut. But you want to thin them out so that they're not right on top of each other and you need to remove a significant percentage of the fruiting wood of peaches and nectarines. They're kind of unique in that regard. So that's why we wanna talk about them first. So looking at this picture, the lower branches are gray wood, mm -hmm. but on each of those, there are side twigs or shoots or whatever you're going to call them mm -hmm. that are red. Are yep. you saying that you cut back half of the gray wood? You cut the gray back to, uh, okay, we're getting into the weeds here. Um, you cut to an existing lateral branch if you can. If that's red, you shorten that up as well. Okay, so the it'll still fruit. Red, even, even, red, even, even branches hanging down low on the tree will will fruit. In the commercial orchards, they call them hangers. So you can leave them. I mean, they're little little one foot long things with red wood. That's going to fruit. You'll have a couple of fruit on there. So if I if I on the a lower gray branch, we have some nice red wood coming off of it. That's say two feet long mm -hmm. do i cut that to, to one foot i cut all the red in half is that so, what i'm hearing that's what we would do yeah if you don't it'll hang okay. and it might break but the, you'll get fruit on that so that's the key. okay 50 50 right. remember the 50 50 rule thin by head back 50 percent, thin by 50 percent. and this is on the the big one the red baron now yeah. what about the somerset which is much smaller same thing it's still a peach Probably a slower growing rootstock on that one. It's a younger tree, I think. Same principle, though. Very strongly upright shoots that are going up. Oh, in two years, they've gone about seven feet. So you're going to want to take those about 50%, cutting to an outward pointing lateral branch to get a more open structure to the tree. And then what remains should also be headed back about 50%. I think that right there sums it up. It's just not going to be as extreme. Now, I'm going to tell you one exception here. I have Red Baron, and it's a beautiful tree. It's got spectacular flowers. It's one of the reasons we grow it. It's a flowering peach that has very good fruit as well. And so mine, I trained with a modified central leader training technique many years ago. I have found that Red Baron tends to set lighter crops than all my others, probably because the flowers are so heavily doubled that they just don't get pollinated as readily. Great. That's great for home gardeners. So I don't find that I have a big problem with fruit load on Red Baron. Uh, so I have not had to do a severe pruning on it as I have generally with other peaches to keep them from falling apart. You can prune it more lightly. You can prune all of them more lightly, but this one in particular just seems my observation, of my tree that's now well over 20 years old, is that it doesn't seem to need as careful attention to the branch structure because it doesn't set such heavy crops. Having said that, watch the fruit load on any fruit tree, but especially peaches and nectarines because they will, every bud all the way down that red wood of growth will try to flower and fruit. And if you allow them all to flower and fruit, um, one, they won't be as big, which may or may not matter to you, but also that can get too heavy right at the moment they're about to ripen. A week before they ripen, the weight gets too severe and the branch splits out. And you know that's very frustrating because that's often kind of the beginning of the end for a peach or nectarine tree. When a branch splits out, you've got problems. So ma manage the fruit crop in any event. Even if you've pruned it carefully and we've done all the things we're talking about, if you've got a branch with fruit too many fruit on it, thin some off. And the old rule of thumb, they should be one fist apart. 
Okay. In other words, take out about every other fruit. If you have them like fruiting all the way down the branch, I realized last year, a lot of you didn't get much fruit because of the rainfall all during the bloom period. Some people got okay fruit set. Some people got good fruit set. Most people, including most farmers, got almost nothing. So they're thinking, all right, this is the year I'll get lots of fruit. Be really careful. That's quite likely to be true. Be really careful not to let all that fruit ripen or you'll have branches splitting and that can just be really problematic for the tree. So thin the fruit. I know it's hard to do. Thin the fruit as it develops if we get good fruit set, if we get good fruit development. How big should the fruit be when you thin it? In other words, if it's, is it the size of your thumb or do you wait till it's the size of a walnut or a size of a fist? Well, then it'd be hitting each other. Natural fruit thinning occurs on its own in May here. Uh, I generally go out in April in the rare years when I actually get around to this and try to do it in April because it's still in the expansion state phase. The earlier you can do it, the better the results will be in terms of the size of the other fruit. Other than that, it doesn't make that much difference. We're mainly concerned about structural integrity of the tree. Uh, right. Most home gardeners, if your peaches are two thirds the size of the ones in the grocery store, you'll still have really good peaches. So you're not that concerned about it. We're mainly concerned about the fact that this is a species which fruits all down the branch of last year's growth, and that can't be sustained in a heavy crop year. And right. so as it gets further and further out, the whole branch may come splitting out. And that, as I said, the reason I'd say that's kind of the beginning of the end, typically when that splits out, suddenly there's branches on the interior of the tree that are exposed to sunlight that were not before. So you suddenly get sunburn on the interior of the tree. Sunburn attracts borers within 24 hours. I remember sitting through seminars on borers and the borer expert at UC Davis would get a call. He was telling us and showing us pictures of major limb breakage and he got there 24 hours later and found points of infestation. So they're very attracted to the heat, the warmth and the, the broken wound for whatever reason. And when you get borers on the interior of a tree on a major limb, it's just basically becomes the process of slowly removing the tree while getting fruit for a few more years as you replace it. There's almost nothing to really be done about it at that point. So avoiding that is really important. And the most common cause of it is limb breakage. And the most common cause of limb breakage is too much fruit. So if you just thin the fruit, you can have your tree last many, many more years. We have a question. Uh, a customer came in who was concerned about the weather yeah. and that there are fewer opportunities to get the fruit tree pruning done. I mean, she's going to be gone certain times. And when she was home, it was raining. So yeah. when is too late to prune your fruit trees, Tom? You can actually do pruning almost any time. And I really wish people would accept that. The, for example, if you aren't getting around, well, first of all, we tell you not to prune your apricots in the winter. Or your, or your cherries. And actually, this advice is beginning to spill over onto grapes for the same reason that the open pruning wound is an avenue for certain diseases in the case of apricots and grapes, you type of disease and cherries, botryosphyria disease, they get in through an open pruning wound. So their suggestion now is don't prune them when there's going to be rain within six weeks. Well, that's all winter, pretty much. With the grapes, that's not real practical because they're monster vines that run all over the place. So the suggestion is to wait till as late in the season as possible while they're still more or less dormant to prune grapes. Look, folks, don't worry too much about this on your grapevines. You're not going to hurt them if you prune them midwinter. But that disease, that dieback has occurred. I've seen it where you're pruning your grape and suddenly you find a whole branch that's dead. Probably that's where it's from, from you type of disease. So those are somewhere you're not supposed to prune in the winter anyway, in the case of apricots and cherries. Um, we do know that that diseases can get into pruning wounds. So more pruning in the summer solves that problem. 
if you do most of your pruning on your apricots, then your cherries, then, and your peaches and your plums and your nectarines, all the deciduous fruit trees, August to September, they've gone through their full growth period. You've typically harvested all the fruit. They go into what pomologists call the quiescent period of dormancy. If you cut them back, they won't sprout. If you cut them back in June or July, they will sprout. So keep that in mind. You wait until they're done with their season's growth, and then you prune off a significant portion of what just grew. Yes, we've talked about this many times. Yes, you're stunting them intentionally. You're basically making them into more like a fruit hedge or a fruit bush is the term that a former farm advisor locally used to use the term fruit bushes. Uh, they look like a big shrub when you do this, but you'll find if you do most of your pruning in the late summer, then you don't have to do as much in the winter. In the winter, you can just do the corrective pruning. So if you're really worried about it and you can't get around to it and you've got you know, she's traveling and she's not going to be able to probably prune until March. Well, you could prune in March. Trees will be in bloom. We've done it when we had a commercial service. Swap the bees away as you're pruning. It's kind of fun, <laughs> but uh, you can also just skip it. All right. I know that sounds radical. Monitor the fruit load really carefully that year because you'll have branches that will have more fruit than is appropriate. So thin the fruit or prune some as you're thinning the fruit. That's okay. Do that. Just know that when you cut then they'll sprout. So you'll get a little bit different growth habit. Monitor the fruit load so you don't have splitting from that and plan on doing your pruning in late summer and then doing any corrective pruning the following winter. It's not an emergency to get it pruned before the end of the dormant season. There's a lot of reasons that it's done. One, if you're going to spray them with a dormant spray, a pruned tree is smaller, so it's easier to get good coverage. Uh, it's the time that traditionally people have done it, and it's certainly easier to see what you're doing from a structural standpoint. But you don't have to prune every fruit tree every year in the winter. You can actually do a lot of that pruning in the summer. Just don't let it go too many years or else you'll have to do corrective or rejuvenation pruning which probably requires a professional but if she can't get it done in january or february thin your fruit plan on pruning in the late summer and in most cases that will probably be fine one little tip that i want to share is that if you are a person who enjoys flower arranging yeah. You know how gorgeous it can be uh, to just before you walk out the door, go and get a branch filled with blossoms, stick it in that base and carry it with you. It doesn't last very long. They fall off quickly. But if you are if you have a plum tree, as I do, mm -hmm. you can prune it. And, and I take off everything that grew last year. Yeah. Plums have spurs on which the fruit is going to set. I don't need all of that brand new wood. But every year it grows, you know, two to three feet straight up from, from the branch. And boy, they make spectacular flower arrangements. So I prune most of them. I leave a couple of those straight up branches intentionally. Mm -hmm. And then when the flowers happen, I can go out and I can harvest a cut flower arrangement. It's wonderful. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.